You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Professor Des O'Neill, along with uh, Professor Mary Cosgrove in the Department of uh, German. Uh, I co-chair the Medical and Health Humanities initiative here in the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is the central point for bringing together a research and scholarship in the Arts and Humanities faculty in Trinity College Dublin. Uh, our program is coordinated by Shelby Zimmerman, and uh, this is the longest running series of seminars in medical and health humanities in Ireland. Uh, we're particularly pleased today uh, to welcome Professor Elizabeth Barry, a professor of modern literature at the University of Warwick in the Department of English. She works in the fields of modern literary studies, medical humanities, and predominantly literary age studies, and has published on representations of ageing in the work of Samuel Beckett, Marcel Proust, Alice Munro, and Margaret Atwood, among others. Uh, she edited the Boydell collection, Literature and Ageing, with Marjorie Wiebeskine in 2020, and is writing a monograph on ageing and the experience of time in modern, modern literature and thought to peer with Bloomsbury in 2023. So delighted to have you here talking on Blue Nights, the experience of frailty in modern life writing literature. So this sort of talk uh, sets out to consider the um, quite contested category of frailty. Um, it's something that, that sort of can look quite different in definition in, in different disciplines and different sort of um, places that one encounters it. Um, and I'll think about it sort of a little bit as medical diagnosis, but predominantly really I'm, I'm thinking about it as sort of lived experience. Um, as it's conceptualized um, in philosophy, um, but also how it's represented in life writing and in a very small amount of fiction. Um, and this already sounds really ambitious uh, uh, and also perhaps audacious, you know, given the, the clinical and scholarly expertise among you. Um, and we've all I think we've all experienced some kind of frailty um, at some point um, in ourselves um, and, and doubtless in those around us. So I'm also presuming, um, I think, in to, to talk about your own experience um, and, and that of those that you love. Um, and so, you know, this is this feels like a, um, an important undertaking, but also a um, you know, one that have, has to be treated carefully, um, perhaps just as well I'm hiding behind a screen, um, but, but we'll see how it goes. So one of my main aims here, linking to that uh, larger research work that, that Des mentioned on the experience of time in older age, is to try and understand further the complex experience of time as it's lived um, in a condition of frailty and to consider frailty in relation to the category and the experience of change in the broadest sense. You know, I'm very interested in change. Um, you know, change can be sort of incremental, you know, even imperceptible as we age, um, or suddenly encountered, um, you know, we almost encounter aging sometimes retrospectively through some sort of, um, significant event. You know, it's a very uneven process, the process of change, and it's quite difficult to talk about and to narrativize, but also really important. So 
um, I'm thinking about what sort of changes usher in the experience of feeling or being seen as frail and how frailty might bespeak a, a fundamental change in one's relationship to um, and tolerance of the phenomenon of change itself. Um, so time and change are kind of watchwords for what I'm doing and hopefully um, I'll show you why they might be interesting to think about intellectually and in, and in terms of how all of this kind of shakes down in, in the living of it. Um, okay, so frailty is a concept, um, as you all know, that sits at the intersection of biomedical, social and ethical discourses, often draw, drawing on medical language, but serving social needs. It's conceptually unstable, um, I think, but, and there's, there's it's contested in the, in the sort of critical age studies literature, um, but it's socially and ethically very powerful um, and determining clinical and social priorities. You know, we, we were touching on this before in, in talking before the, we began. Um, and it commands, of course, strong feelings and, and ethical positions. And as anthropologist Sharon Kaufman has observed, its definition is usually sort of broad and, and qualitative. And she cites the American Heritage Dictionary, for instance, defining it as having one or more health or functioning decrements that seriously affect the person's ability to carry out the, the expected and usual activities of daily living. Um, you've probably got much more specific, possibly more useful um, definitions of it in, in your context. But for, for obvious reasons, I'm perhaps sort of thinking about sort of the broadest range of possibilities, at least to start with. And as such, it can be in the term can be invoked in relation to obviously to dangerous systemic health conditions, loss of mobility, sensory impairment, cognitive decline. Or, or psychological vulnerability, and, and usually identify sort of two or more of these conditions in combination. Um, but the thrust of its use, at least, is generally to signal, or, or is often at least, to signal a loss of independence and a need for external intervention. So there are really vexed ethical and ideological questions here. Um, it's vital on the one hand to keep the older person as agent and individual subject in view, but autonomy may not be an unalloyed good in the context of frailty. Um, it might, in some discourses, obscure, and Kaufman sort of talks about this, the important role of community, for instance, um, sort of, you know, where, where the support, the necessary support might come from, what responsibilities others have towards um, the, the subject, the, the individual. It might elevate independence, sort of the, the fetishizing autonomy, I suppose, might elevate independence over the idea of interdependence that's, that's central and necessary to all human flourishing at any stage. So how can the frail individual and those around them balance the need for autonomy and the need for care? You know, it's a delicate and precarious balance in any human relationship at any stage of life, of course, um, and especially at this challenging juncture. Um, obviously, I don't have an answer to that. Sorry, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, but I'm... But this kind of consideration of frailty um, will try to keep these conceptual and ideological tensions in view, um, if obviously in no way resolving them. 
I'm going to draw on the philosophy of selfhood to try to recover the lived experience of the individual in all of this. Um, and while I make reference to a number of thinkers and writers, um, the talk will take as a sort of central case study, Joan Didion's 2011 memoir, Blue Nights, a portrait of frailty that wrestles in, in plain sight with this abiding tension between autonomy and vulnerability, um, something that sort of takes as its central theme. It's perhaps an impossible task to speak of aging in a manner shorn of ideology and value judgment. Um, but I'm using, it, at least partly, an approach that intends to found itself. You know, this is obviously impossible in one sense, but it intends to found itself on the direct relationship between subject and world. And that is phenomenology, the philosophy of subjective, subjectivity itself, of the first person lived experience. Um, you know, phenomenology understands our lived experience as embodied um, and so has a particular pertinence for the study of older age. And in considering, as it does really centrally, the mediation of our experience by the dimensions of time and space, it might also help us to understand a phase of life when both time and space often become subject to new kinds of limitation. But the, the philosophy of phenomenology, strangely, in a way, given its emphasis on both the body and time, does not really have much to say about aging per se. Um, and so I'll also turn to literature, um, and in particular, literary life writing, as a sort of practical phenomenology. This is Patricia Waugh's sort of term, and, and I'm following her contention that literature can act in this way, can be really attentive to these, these categories these, um, of, of time and space um, and an embodied experience, but represent those in the concrete context of older age. And, and an emphasis, so I'm going to start off perhaps at thinking about time and space um, and, and you know, put more flesh on those bones. Um, an emphasis on subjective time as encountered in, in philosophical phenomenology can capture the ways that time comes newly into focus, becomes palpable, but also becomes strange to us at certain times of life. Time, of course, can pass more slowly as we live it in advanced older age, you know, tasks taking longer, days passing with less incident. But as the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer observed, it seems to have passed more quickly when we look back on it. In, in his terms, in old age, we have a, a short past. Um, and our experience of shape and uh, sorry of space and distance also change. If the world is what our bodies allow us to know as world, um, then that world changes when we can no longer move quickly or far in it. And concepts such as near and far lose their habitual meaning and are redefined for us. And these concerns also bear on our extent, existential sense of being in the world. We can become confined to and identified with a fixed location and lose our spatial sense of freedom. Philosopher Javi Carell, investigating the phenomenology of illness, quotes S.K. Toombs describing a loss of mobility, as might be experienced in advanced older age, as anchoring one in the here, engendering a heightened sense of distance between oneself 
and surrounding things. And as we'll see in our reading of Didion's memoir, frailty, like other kinds of illness, modifies not only one's body, but one's sense of space. Phenomenology can disclose the general structures of these new dimensions to the world. And I want to stay for a moment with, with philosopher Javi Corral and her 2016 work, Phenomenology of Illness. Carell's philosophical study of illness, drawing on her own experience of the sudden onset of severe disease, age 35, so severe lung disease in her case, and life-limiting disease, is, is so this study of illness, I think, can also be instructive as a model for thinking about aging and its continuities with other sorts of bodily experience, as well as a salutary reminder that we can encounter frailty at any time of life. Um, so this is Carell describing the world that was revealed to her by illness. She says, a new world is created, a world without spontaneity, a world of limitation and fear, a slow, encumbered world to which the ill person must adapt. Many people experience the, this loss of spontaneity through aging. In illness, this opaque and alien world can emerge overnight. So Carell not only wants to offer a philosophical conception of the self in illness, but also to think about how illness must cause us, may cause us to question and reconceive our idea of human selfhood per se. So the dominant rationalist Anglo-American philosophy of selfhood proposes a self that is predominantly cognitive. The body is corrupt, the body, uh, sorry, cognitive, mental and linguistic. Um, and, and from this sort of purview of rational, um, the rational or the purely metaphysical, the body is kind of corruptible and transient and frailty and uncomfortable reminder of our contingency, a testimony in the words of, of philosopher, philosophy of aging, uh, philosopher of aging, Sally Gadow, um, is, you know, a, a testimony to finitude, imperfection and eventual death. Corral challenges this viewpoint via alternate philosophical perspectives, you know, the continental philosophy that foregrounds kind of bodily experience as, as constitutive of our self and, and you know, our thinking. Um, but she also finds a current in recent Anglo-American philosophy that can accommodate a positive understanding of frailty and even dependence. So she invokes the thinking of Alistair McIntyre um, so McIntyre, this might this might be a surprise to people who only know a bit of his work, because he's you know he's very much or he was very much a rationalist philosopher in Gadow's terms, and he's known for his conception of of life course in the the very famous 1981 book After Virtue as a kind of uh, so he, he posits life course as a kind of heroic narrative quest uh, and the self as a rational actor in that narrative, exactly the sort of account that a disabling um, period of older age would seem to derail. But his thought develops and changes between After Virtue and his 1999 book, which argues for a more expansive and inclusive model of the self, and he calls it dependent rational animals. Um, so following, following McIntyre, Carell proposes that the illusion of autonomy and independence and the misunderstanding of adulthood as subsuming the whole of human life are errors that lead to an inadequate moral view. So if we, we make life synonymous with 
sort of um, vigorous adulthood, the sort of middle middle years of adulthood, as it were, if, if that's our sort of reference point for what is life, what is, you know, the, the um, philosophical subject, you know, that's going to cause us problems in lots and lots of different contexts. Um, and and Carell's saying, you know, the kind of charged, changed relation to the world that comes with illness um, can qualify and, and perhaps even correct that view. Um, and the fact of aging also seems by definition to challenge this view of the autonomous self, um, especially as the way that Carell after McIntyre uses adulthood sort of excludes advanced old age as it does childhood. Fully fledged selfhood in this flawed account, Carell suggests, is predicated on levels of independence that are not available in childhood and are often compromised in the very last stages of life. So a truer and more comprehensive perspective on life would accommodate these liminal stages, reflecting the observation of Sally Gadow that an unalterable given in human existence is the possibility of injury and destruction, the quality of frailty. As Gadow writes, quoting Edith Wiskogrod, to be as embodied, to be as embodied existence as flesh is to be fragile. Any full account of human life and even of human flourishing must embrace rather than exclude such a perspective. When the French writer Colette comes in her late memoir, The Evening Star, to write about the painful arthritis that kept her housebound and sometimes bedbound, she too asks what insights the last phase of life and this painful condition might offer. The response is to describe her situation in this way. She says, every season, every day almost, informs us of a new restriction, demands a new renunciation, the acknowledgement from ourselves to ourselves of having shaken today the chain which is to be more firmly riveted tomorrow. The seasons cycle over to acknowledge the fetters of the previous year and their mark is already to accept them like a garment rendered tolerable by age. If we are to be shaped by misfortune, it's as well to accept it. Of course, I'm not making older age synonymous with misfortune, um, but thinking about her condition of frailty as it's, as it's sort of presented to her, um, she manages to separate, in a sense, the self, um, separate herself off from these experiences and acknowledge the privations that they represent, but also her own ability to tolerate them. She uses writing um, to, to sort of uh, achieve this. You know, like Carell, she speaks to a loss of spontaneity and a constant process of transformation to which one must continually adapt. Um, but the aging that imposes such restrictions is also the condition that allows her to accept them. Older people are, she reflects, better able to endure this gradual consuming change than the young are a thorn under the fingernail or a bad whitlow. As Kathleen Woodward has observed, it was a feat for Colette, along with Simone de Beauvoir and Marguerite Duras, writing, writing narratives of older women, 
to revise, in, in Woodward's words, the age-old French plot of abandonment and re renunciation for older women. You know, that's that's usually has been their fate, or tra traditionally been their fate in, in French fiction. Colette makes this renunciation itself the story rather than the failed ending of a narrative. And it's she as subject who's doing the renouncing um, she's, you know, she's actively thinking about um, what, you know, how certain aspects of life are renounced in this last stage and that, and that there may be positive aspects to that. Um, her narrator in the Evening Star, also Colette, not quite the same as her, but, um, but close. <laughs> um, it's her that, that periodically retreats from her, her loving partner at least as she tells it, into her own mind and into a welcome solitude. And the alchemy that she performs through writing in her late work is to accept ageing and what she describes as her near immobility as a gift as well as a curse, the source of a world of new meanings comparable to those that Carell finds in illness. And now in the concluding part of the talk, I want to consider the representation of some of these concerns of, of time and change and adaptation and selfhood itself in, um, the, in North American journalist and, and novelist Joan Didion's memoir of aging, as I said, Blue Nights. And in this work, Didion painfully and with resistance, you know, much more resistance than Colette perhaps, charts uh, also charts a new relationship to embodiment, a new apprehension of existential finitude and a revelation of, or perhaps perhaps in her case, a concession to um, the fundamentally interconnected and interdependent nature of human existence. So I'm coming back to, to time to start with. Um, so far, we've thought about the incremental change that characterizes older age in contrast to serious and unforeseen illness. But frailty could be seen as a condition which threatens the distinction Carell draws between sudden serious illness and the slow, if inexorable, change that aging brings. Kathleen Woodward observes that frailty inhabits an unstable position between the categories of chronic and acute illness. The condition of frailty is predictable in itself, but once arrived, makes every day unpredictable. Bodily change is incremental, but the body is also at constant risk of a violent and irreversible deterioration. And the experience of time in such condition is obviously a complex one. In one sense, time quickens with the apprehension of risk. On the other, it slows every movement deliberate, life robbed of spontaneity. One feels time anew. And frailty somehow often seems made of such paradoxes. You know, disaster is kind of felt at once as suspended, poised to descend in one fell swoop, but also, you know, to be playing out in slow motion. Didion, writing in Blue Nights, describes the arrival of this condition of frailty, hastened by the death of both members of her immediate family, her husband John Dunn in 2003 and her adult daughter Quintana Dunn in 2005, um, as well as her own age-related health concerns. From the outset, the effect um, that 
this condition, this new feeling of frailty has on her perception of time is, is foregrounded. She observes that when she was young and, and, and more fit and, she, and more well than she is now, she heard the phrase time passes as time passes, but not so aggressively that anyone notices. Or even, she goes on, time passes, but not for me. Now in her presence, time is palpable, a revelation of, a, of an intangible but sort of irrefutable kind. Um, and here she's again describing her long-held state of willed ignorance toward frailty. And in so doing, that frailty itself. So one of the fascinating things about Blue Nights is that frailty, it, I think it discloses that frailty can be a kind of attitude towards the, the bodily changes one is experiencing, a kind of inflexibility um, and, and uh, a, a problem with adapting um, that you know that can in a sense be a defining characteristic of frailty or a sort of overarching um, issue in that, that that's probably very familiar um, to many of us in that in that context you know none of us want to <laughs> um, want to accommodate these changes sort of willingly um, but but it, it calls for um, a, sort of a different way of living which I'll, I'll say more about in a moment. And she talks about this, this sort of resistance as, as part of the narrative. She says, could it be that I did not figure in either the general condition or the permanence of the slowing, the irreversible changes in mind and body, the way in which you wake one morning less resilient than you were, and by Christmas find your ability to mobilise gone, atrophied, no longer extant, the way in which your awareness of this passing time this permanent slowing, this vanishing resilience multiplies, metastasizes, becomes your very life. So she sets out to document this experience of change. Um, and in the particular terms of her very glamorous life, um, she goes on, the way in which you live most of your life in California, and then you don't. So she makes this move back from the West Coast to the East Coast of America and from to the sort of long, light, warm evenings to the cold, dark ones that drop suddenly. And this blue light that kind of presages these, this, the coming of winter. Um, and, and of course, using this as a very, as an overarching metaphor for what's happening to her, but, but sort of writing um, about it very compellingly. Um, and in and it in somewhere often sort of operating between literal and, and metaphorical terms. So the paradoxical state of simultaneous chronicity and crisis that frailty can present is hard to narrate. As I've said, it's hard in in some cases even to see to identify. Um, but we can look back a bit in literary time to at least one sort of very brief but, but um, prominent in some sense representation, which is Marcel Proust's reflections on precisely this kind of change, this, this new condition in the last volume of In Search of Lost Time, um, the, the volume now translated as Finding Time Again. And there his narrator talks of the singular form that advanced old age can take of older people active the night before, who fracture their thigh, for instance, um, and thereafter enter a new phase of existence, 
what he calls a preliminary to inevitable death. So, so it's you know it's not always clear what the first step in this kind of cascade of of problems are, um, and and that it sort of frailty presents this sort of um, perplexing appearance um, to him as he's living it. Um, he himself at a party can be at a party where people say he looks better than ever but he can come near to falling three times going downstairs when leaving and so tired once home that his memory and power of thought had gone. And he goes on to explicitly connect Carell's sense of the revelatory potential of physical adversity with this last life stage. He writes, this idea of death installed itself in me as definitively as love does. The impossibility of going downstairs, of remembering a name, of getting up, it had all come together, the great mirror of the spirit reflected in new reality. And we see a similar sentiment in Florida Scott Maxwell's more sustained reflection on what it is to grow old, the measure of my days. Um, so she's writing about her own advanced old age. Um, she, she says, and she writes, sort of, it's both ironic and unironic, I think, that she calls it a period of heroic helplessness. It, you know, it, it does have some heroic qualities for her. It, and it's a period, it's a period that she, she can only talk about in a sense in, in oxymorons or in, in, in um, sort of opposing terms. You know, it's a period of passion without energy, a place on the far side of precept and aim in which time has no content, but seems nonetheless to expand us, as she says. And that idea of expanding, I think, is strikingly similar to the famous ending of Proust's novel, where frailty, tottering and trembling is simply a natural response to being atop stilts that have grown taller each year in that very end of, of Proust's novel, to be dizzied by the altitude of acquired time elevated rather than weighed down by the mountain of memories. Um, but where Proust requires a certain kind of uh, aesthetic, sorry, aesthetic ingenuity um, to transform bodily weakness and finitude into authority, uh, Scott Maxwell sees a natural connection akin to Carell's. So Proust, Proust has to go to metaphor, although we can see, see what he's saying there. Um, but both he and Scott Maxwell sort of picture this as a new age of discovery. And we are for Scott Maxwell simply people to whom something important is about to happen. Sally Gaddow um, quotes um, Scott Maxwell when, when she's writing about aging um, in, a, in a philosophical framework. She says, when a new, she quotes Scott Maxwell saying, when a new disability arrives, I look about to see if death has come. And I call quietly, death, is that you? There's an obvious cost to this apprehension of mortality, of course, and she doesn't shy away from physical suffering or from fear pregnant with her impending death in her striking image. She feels the panic of a woman in late pregnancy who feels herself filled up and, and colonized by the baby, its life leaving no room for her at all. So 
So that's Scott Maxwell sort of giving this, making this analogy with, with pregnancy. Gado offers a, a sort of philosophical reflection on this um, or has her own way of thinking about this fullness, this tipping point, um, rendered perhaps also in less positive terms in Didion's suggestion that frailty can metastasize to become one's very life. If bodily infirmity in older age becomes too pronounced, Gado suggests, it's no longer a background, a horizontal boundary marking the remote limits of human endeavor. It has overtaken the self at its very center. Didion, after a fall at night, observes something similar. This incident is something, she says, that altered my view of my own possibilities, shortened, as it were, the horizon. I think Maxwell sort of, Scott Maxwell gives us this sense of fullness, you know, and the fear, the, the threat that that seems to represent, but also the way that Proust does at the end of his novel, the idea of plenitude, of uh, even sort of saturation with, with experience, with insight, with a, a full life um, that, that makes this, this image sort of in, in these different formulations, I think very interesting and, and not entirely negative. Um, but what also emerges here is a time of sort of unpredictability within a larger framework of inexorable progression towards the horizon of death, a horizon that has suddenly come nearer. And while Scott Maxwell approaches this horizon with an open, even curious attitude that, that Didion can't quite muster, even Didion is, is clear eyed about the insights, you know, the experiential knowledge that this new phase is offering to her. Even if our future is a foreshortened one, it's one to which we orient ourselves in this period. You know, we are still future oriented, not only adapting to, but actively anticipating change. But to accommodate this existential change can also, of course, require a significant adjustment in behavior and outlook. Um, and Blue Knights tells the story of Didion's realization that the liberal ethic described by gerontologist Thomas Cole, sorry, realization that the liberal ethic described by Thomas Cole, whereby one must remain engaged, productive and self-reliant. Um, you know, a really successful strategy for Didion um, as a younger woman bolstered by family, this idea of being active at, at all costs and being self-reliant at all costs might be less effective in older age and in bereavement. You know, successful aging, as it's often referred to, this very, very contentious term um, in gerontology, um, successful aging might actually not, um, as it generally is in those contexts, be the same as success defined by an, a neoliberal society. You know, Didion's memoir offers a critique of the internalized slogans that saw her offering herself as a perfected version of the individualistic capitalist character dedicated to work, dis work discipline and self-reliance. You know, this mantra that she has, maintain momentum, do not complain, work harder, spend more time alone. These are the ways that she initially responds to her frailty. Um, and these might work for one phase of adulthood, the one that's endorsed, as we saw, by rationalist philosophy, but not every stage of life. 
they may in fact be products of or, or, or sort of come from, proceed from what we saw Carell call earlier an inadequate moral view. Blue Knight speaks not only of overwhelming loss and its attendant grief, but in the wake of these experiences of revising one's entire understanding of what it is to be tough or strong or resilient, what it might mean to endure. The markers of her control over her life and the manifestations of her will, so central to her success, sort of professionally and socially, come to seem maladaptive in this last period of her life and in the face of unbanishable tragedy. She describes herself brushing off initially the diagnosis of shingles, still oblivious to the extent to which maintaining momentum was precisely what had led me to the doctor's office. The very unshakable determination to impose those principles, as I said earlier, becomes a kind of frailty or perhaps miraculously a sort of a bad frailty or a maladaptive frailty to be set against a, a better vision of frailty that Kaufman identifies with an adaptational process and a process that inevitably encompasses other people and involves support and care. Adaptation for Didion takes the shape of formerly abjured behaviours, slowing down, working less hard, and implicitly relying more on others after the self-injunction to be alone more is shown to be a dangerous, if not a catastrophic one. What constitutes successful aging in this instance is the ability to relinquish or at least modify key aspects of her identity, as well as reasserting one part of herself, the ability to tell a true story as a vital form of connection that can ward off isolation to retaining that, that sort of journalist's um, element of her, in, her identity. Where she finds integrity, if not always comfort, is in coming to know, after all, what frailty is by living it and living, in a sense, living through these, these, um, these failed strategies. She cannot embrace, but she comes to recognise um, the foreshadowing of death in this new hinterland of frailty. I know, she writes, what the frailty is. I know what the fear is. And that is the true story that she has to tell. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.